All right, well, grab your Bibles and open them to Proverbs chapter 9. Uh, we are continuing our series through Proverbs today. Uh, we're getting into the last chapter here, um, uh, leading up to 20 chapters of proverbial sayings. Uh, so this week and next week we'll be in chapter 9, and this is sort of the bookend of the first section. It's, it's wrapping up and sort of bringing to conclusion all that has been discussed up to this point. So we'll finish chapter 9 next week, and then we will jump to the other side of the wise sayings, um, uh, looking at the last two chapters of the book um, as they return to sort of these big picture ideas. Now today, the focus of the sermon is going to be on the concept of insight. Now insight means having a deep understanding of something. Uh, To have insight is to understand something well enough to respond uh, properly. So when we say someone has insight in a relationship, we would say that they somehow understand the dynamic of that relationship so that they can act appropriately. When someone has insight in a specific situation, we figure that they have the details, they have the facts needed to make the right decision. And so insight is the necessary condition for being able to choose what is right. Now Proverbs here is going to talk not about insight as a particular person or situation, but insight into all of life. The insight that Lady Wisdom offers is not applicable here or there, but it takes into account all of the variables and relationships that are at play. I talked about this a little bit in the um, reading of the law this morning. I also made a comment about this last week, uh, that when we receive direction from God, it may only be one piece of the truth, but that piece is related to the whole. And so when God gives us a command, it is in a digestible bite, but the truth is not confined to that bite. All the relationships have been considered, and this is one part of a cohesive system of truth. Now, in order to operate from our limited viewpoint, we have to simplify, dilute, and categorize. Because we have no ability to hold all of these conditions, all of these variables, all of these truths together at one time. And so as human beings, we have to look at the little bit that's right in front of us because we don't have the brain power to imagine all that is going on around it. And so when we make a decision or when we choose a direction, we are always operating from a lack of insight, focusing on one issue at the expense of all the others. Now, what this causes us to do as human beings is to act to solve one problem as we then create three more. Because we haven't considered the unintended consequences, that's actually what makes them unintended. This then is why the Bible is so harsh toward the idea of human wisdom. It's not because it's always completely sinful or even completely foolish, but it is always incomplete. And when you're talking about a balance of interconnected parts, Incompleteness does damage. Uh, There's an old secular proverb, not from Proverbs, but from out there, um, that speaks to this. Uh, You might have heard it before. My kids had heard it before when I read it to them. It says, For want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For want of a shoe, the horse was lost. For want of a horse, the rider was lost. For want of a rider, the battle was lost. For want of a battle, the kingdom was lost. And all for the want of of a horseshoe nail. Um, The idea being, all that was needed was a nail, but when that nail was taken, it started a whole chain of events that eventually led to the fall of a kingdom. 
In the same way, not considering how our actions are going to affect others or even other parts of our own life, means that we are creating all sorts of outcomes and effects even when we don't intend to. Now, the way that this is most often described in science and philosophy is by the concept known as the butterfly effect, which you've probably heard of. The idea that a butterfly flaps its wings over here in Brazil and the change in conditions that that creates eventually can uh, work its way all the way over to creating a tornado in Texas. Right? So small alterations to a complex system can produce big changes because the parts of the whole all impact one another. Now, this is one of those places where I think scientific advances uh, kind of force us back to God's description of his world. Uh, the butterfly effect has created a whole field of study called chaos theory, and I only kind of understand it, but let me just read to you the description of what chaos theory is. Chaos theory states that within the apparent randomness of chaotic, complex systems, there are underlying patterns, interconnection, constant feedback loops, repetition, self-similarity, and self-organization. In other words, there are mathematical and ordered systems at play in even the things in our world that seem random to us upon first glance. Some of them are so amazingly overwhelming that we cannot begin to solve them with the greatest computers that we can build. And so the world is absolutely connected and ordered but in such a way that we cannot simply discover and solve it and make sense of it. We will never be able to attain insight then on our own apart from God. And yet we are promised that it is the means to live in line with the universe we exist in. And all of the world was designed to be this way. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, it makes this amazing statement about how order and complexity work together. It says this in verse 11, it says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor taken away from it. God has done it so that the people fear before him. He has put eternity in man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out. Which is to say truth and knowledge and insight are a worthy goal. The desire for understanding of this world was put into our hearts by God. He put eternity there but in such a way that we will never actually be able to find it and attain it. And so we go, why would God do this? Why would he design his world to operate this way? Well, it gives us the answer. God has done it so that people fear before him. Now, to fear him means that we honor him as God and that we trust him and follow him in obedience and it's not just that God is trying to kind of keep us in our place. This is how the world was designed to, to, to work, to ordered to function. We are to act as the creation under our creator, giving him worship and honor, and he will take care of us and care for us along the way. And when we do this, we can be joyful and do good as long as we live because we'll no longer be burdened by our own ignorance. 
And so God's gift to man is an insight that removes from us the need to have everything figured out. Now, that sounds like just embracing ignorance, and kind of is, uh, which seems a little bit odd in a sermon on insight. Now, last week, one of the things that I said was that, that humility is being honest about who we are. Actually looking in the mirror and, 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 and being true to, this is who I am. The truth is, human beings do not have everything figured out. And we will not find the answers that we're searching for. Do not put your hope in future human knowledge. It's not going to get everything figured out for us. But as I say that, I want to be careful not to push us towards some sort of anti-science, anti-intellectual view that became very popular, it seems, over the last little bit. Embracing ignorance doesn't mean that we just throw out human insight. I mean, if you were with us through COVID, thank you for still being here, you know that one of the ideas that we leaned into as a church was the belief that God has equipped people with brains and put them in places to study and know specifics to help us in this life. And so epidemiologists and doctors and health department workers doing their job, well, helps us in times of novel viruses. And so we should weigh the knowledge of those God has called and equipped over how I personally feel about it with my very limited knowledge on microbiology. Now, this way of thinking about these things is what's called sphere sovereignty. It's the belief that each sphere of knowledge and understanding has its own rules and expertise. And people should honor the knowledge of these various spheres. They should actually say, people who have committed their lives to these things, if God is truly God overall, he is helping in each and every one of those places. But even as we honor those spheres of expertise and look to human wisdom to help us, we should also always remember its limitations. That's the balance that we must live in. Because human beings, again, will never make sense of the complexity of creation. We will get things right, but never in a way that is holistic and complete. And so when we read a report written by some specialist, we should recognize that this person has focused down on one part of creation. They've studied it independently from all other parts. When we look at long-distance modeling, right, we should, be, we should be amazed at what science can do, and yet we should be aware that a butterfly flapping its wings over here can shift the entire outcome. My main point here is not to denigrate intellectualism, but to elevate the insight of God. 1 Corinthians 1.25 tells us, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now while that verse is specifically pointing to the gospel and the way that God chooses to save his people from sin, it's also true about every way that he has orchestrated his creation to work. The world is set up so that we keep searching and learning forever without ever being able to get our heads wrapped around it. And 1 Corinthians tells us that God set it up this way so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So as we come to the text today, I want to come hungry for the insight that God gives us. If we are going to come and basically say God is going to give us insight, um, knowing how important it is for us to have it is where we should start. So with that, let's get into it. Proverbs chapter 9, starting in verse 1. This is what it says. It says, Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. 
She has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. And so the wisdom of God is described here using two metaphors, as a house and as a meal. Um, Now, as someone who went to architecture school and cooking school, um, I feel like it falls within my spheres of expertise to speak on both of these. Um, Because both of these here are here to speak about the depth and breadth of the insight that God offers us. And so let's look at them. Uh, First, it says a house. It says, wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. Um, So home. Home is both a structure and an idea. Home is one of those things that is central to our understanding of life. It's the place that we spend the majority of our time. Um, And yet it's something that we often haven't really made sense of necessarily what it is. We put signs in our house that say, you know, home is where the heart is or home sweet home. Um, But what really does that mean? Well, home is defined by the things that happen there, right? The memories that we create, but also the hopes of what can be. And all of this, all of these hopes and dreams and memories are pulled together in a structure of wood, concrete, brick, and stone. Which is to say, home is both a a physical and a philosophical entity. And the two overlap. The moments happen in a place, and also those moments happen because of a place. Um, And that's starting to touch actually on my master's thesis, which I will not get into right now. But that is to say, I spent a lot of time thinking about these ideas of home. I studied this and I knew this, um, but I don't really think that I understood and knew this until about a year ago when we decided to sell the house that we had lived in for over a decade. Um, We sold the house that we raised our kids in, um, but also one that I had labored on to refinish floors and remodel bathrooms and hang lights and all the things that you do when you own a home. Um, Some of those repairs had now been chipped since I had worked on them, um, really just uh, reminders of living there and the things that had happened. Um, Small imperfections then that we had to smooth over so that we could sell our house to someone to whom those dents meant absolutely nothing. Um, I'll tell you this, I never imagined I could have an emotional reaction to spackling, um, but it happened. Um, And it's a good reminder that buildings have meaning beyond themselves. Um, they are, again, just a structure, but they're a structure in which things happen. And my point in all this is to make it clear that uh, to build one's home requires more than just construction knowledge. It requires understanding how spaces interact with life. At the same time, you can have a house that has great memories and a leaky roof, um, so structure does matter. When wisdom builds her house here, We see that it's both one that is constructed to stand firm, but also one that remembers what its main purpose is. See, the beginning of every building, the most important part, really, um, is the foundation. A house with a strong foundation can last for um, centuries. We see those types of buildings all over the world. Uh, One with a weak foundation will have sloping floors, doors that don't close, and cracks in the wall within a matter of years. We also have some of those in our community. Um, To assure a solid foundation, then, the footings have to go down past all the layers of topsoil, down to the bedrock below. It needs to stand on something strong. Jesus uses this example when he speaks of wisdom in the New Testament. 
Right in the Sermon on the Mount, he says this. He says, everyone who then hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And when the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house, it fell and great was the fall of it. Right? So the rains came down and the floods came up. House on the rock stood firm. Harris really wanted me to lead everyone in a rendition of that. How about Harris? If people want to stay after, Harris will come up. We can sing it together, okay? But the idea here is that there are these foundational truths and ideas that the rest of our worldview sits on. Right? What we believe the, the purpose and meaning of life is are going to determine everything else that we then believe. What we think will provide fulfillment is going to control where we put our time and our energy. So the place we start, the foundation of truth that we allow to be the beginning of our belief system is going to determine how the rest of the house functions. This is why the insight of God needs to be trusted fully. Because it's the only thing that is sure. It's the only thing that can be relied on without hesitation. It's the only thing that doesn't shift with the cultural sands. And so to start here, to build our house on the rock gives us the strength needed to be able to deal with all of the variables that come. God has given us this foundation. We don't have to go find it. He has given us his truth. As Jesus said, we simply need to hear his words and do them. Now, along with the foundation, the house needs to be organized to meet all the needs of the household. Um, I'd say this is what's implied here when it says, Wisdom has hewn her seven pillars. Um, Now, biblically, seven is the the number for perfection or completion. Uh, Pillars hold up the structure, but um, architecturally, pillars also are what provide visual organization. They sort of break the building up into its defined pieces. They give us our spaces. So to have her seven pillars in place means that wisdom has an order by which everything has its right place. What this means for wisdom is that God's insight provides us with the means to not only have a solid foundation, but for getting the right balance between all of the moving parts that make up life. And life has a lot of moving parts. Uh, For some of you, there are more moving parts than others. Um, But life can be quite overwhelming because every one of these things, every one of these parts that makes up the whole seems like its own unsolvable problem. But what a well-organized home does for us is it provides the peace and structure to deal with each one as part of a cohesive worldview. It gives us the means to disregard some things presented to us as truth. It gives us a lens to be discerning towards incomplete truths. God's insight then does not answer every question for our lives. He doesn't have a, a Q&A in the back of the Bible. But what he does is he gives us a foundation in the order to deal with whatever this world offers us as truth. He gives us everything to build the system and the lens by which to be able to see and know truth. So that's the wisdom as the construction of a home. Now let's look at a meal. It says, She has slaughtered her beast, she has mixed her wine, she also has set her table. Um, Now, two things to notice about the meal being prepared here. Um, First, it's not a simple meal. 
Um, there is a way to cook and eat that is mainly about providing sustenance to your body. Um, anyone who's gone to college probably eaten a lot of ramen. That's like within that wheelhouse. But the feast being referred to here with, with meat and good wine, this is a meal to be enjoyed by all of the senses. This is, this is again, this is a feast. This has been thought out down to the table settings, it tells us. The second thing to notice about this meal is that it takes a lot of work. Um, now, I'm not talking about the difference between doing the shopping on your own or doing Instacart. It tells us she has slaughtered the beast herself. She has mixed the wine. And so this is not only a feast, this is a farm-to-table feast. Um, she is taking all of the ingredients and bringing them to the point where they are, again, this, this beautiful meal. Now, I spent some time um, before I was a pastor as a prep cook um, in fine dining restaurants. Um, and one of the places I worked, we would spend four to five days um, making uh, demi-glaze from scratch. Um, we used to always get like the chickens in and I'd have to do the eight-part chicken cuts and smoke this part and this part would go like, so this part would go carcass, would go to the stock. Like we would take everything from its kind of rawest all the way through the process to where it was presented as a meal. Every ingredient was prepared to bring out the greatest flavor it could possibly be. And let me just say, that kind of cooking takes time. A lot of time. You can't just throw the stuff in the pot and come back five minutes later and it's ready to eat. It is step by step, by process by process. But once you taste something that has been prepared this way, that has been simmered for days, or a dish where all the flavors have been considered for how they complement one another. Once you, once you eat that way, everything else sort of tastes less than. And so this perfect meal here, that has been prepared from start to finish, where all the details have been considered, this is here to, to mirror for us the wisdom of God. Just as a meal with this much care tastes better and brings a more complete satisfaction so will a life that follows God's insight rather than just what is right in front of us. God's plan for our life is not just about getting us the calories that we need, but providing us a full experience of flavor and enjoyment. His insight is not about fast food eaten in our car, but about a deep and full truth that may take more time and effort, but is so much more complete, is so worth it in the end. And so when God gives us insight, he's providing a foundation, a place for us to confidently set our feet. He's providing for us a structure from which to discern what is true. And he's providing for us a robust and flavorful life where everything has been considered and the pieces have been brought together to bring about joy and fulfillment. And the invitation of wisdom here in all of this is leave your simple ways. Leave what is, is, is weak and secondary and unfulfilling behind. And walk in the way of insight. So what is it that keeps us from this? Why do we not take hold of all the promise, promises that insight gives? Well, mostly it's our unwillingness to listen. Which is where the text goes. Verse 7 says this. It says, Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse. And he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Give instructions to a wise man and he will be still wiser. 
Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. So we're given a comparison here uh, between how instruction is treated by a wicked man and by a wise man. So two people receiving the same instruction um, have very different responses. We're told that a fool or, or a scoffer will hate the one who offers counsel, but the wise man or the righteous man will love you. Now this is not just about giving advice, it's connected to the whole idea of insight. There are those who will look at the insight of God, they will look at the truth that he offers, and they will respond in disgust. And there will those who will look at it and they will respond in thanksgiving. And so the question is, what is the difference? What makes one person respond in thanksgiving and one person respond in disgust? Well, at the beginning of the sermon, I talked about our, uh, a lot about human limitation and acknowledging our ignorance. And that is important not only for human wisdom on a grand scale, but also for each one of us individually. Right? We need to actually admit that we don't know if we are going to be able to listen to someone who does. If you think that your best chance of finding joy, happiness, and meaning is by following what you desire, then anything that challenges that is going to be seen as an enemy of good. God's insight will come in, and it will be this foreign idea that are at odds with what you have decided is best. And when that happens, you will respond with anger. And what Proverbs is telling us here is that is foolishness. You are rejecting what is good because you have already settled on something that is less than. Now sadly, this is a foolishness that we see all around us. Rather than receiving the insight of God, too many read God's truth through their over-assumed ability. They come to the conclusion that they are more right than God. They're more interested in their own ideas than they are about learning and growing and becoming more sanctified. Proverbs 18 describes it this way. It says, A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Now that not only prevents you from maturing, it also leads you to hear instruction as an attack. Because again, you've already settled on what is good, and if God doesn't agree with you, he's the problem. Now the wise person admits that they are sinful, admits that they are twisted, admits that they are incomplete, that they need help. And if you believe that you need help, correction is glorious. Right? Correction and reproof and instruction are the means to increase in learning. Which is to say, embracing ignorance allows us to free ourselves from ignorance. Because as long as you think you need to know everything, you're going to be fragile, you're going to be defensive, you're going to need to justify your intellect at every turn. Becoming comfortable with the fact that you do not have all the insight allows you to actually be able to hear it. Proverbs 18.15 tells us, An intelligent heart acquires knowledge, and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. Now, I find this very interesting because it basically is telling us that believing that you are supposed to be wise on your own and have everything figured out is going to keep you from being able to become wise. Right? It's not only a burden you can't carry, actually chasing after and thinking that you can cram all of this intellect into your head 
is going to prevent you from actually becoming smarter. No, the path to wisdom and insight is through accepting your own ineptitude. And when you believe you are lacking wisdom on your own, you will seek it. And God promises that those who come to him will receive it. And with this, God will provide for you what you need to have a full life. Which is how this section ends. In verse 10, it tells us, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me your days will be multiplied, and and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. And so we get a repeat here from chapter 1. That's why I say it's kind of a bookend. Um, Chapter 1 told us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And now we have added to it the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. What we see is that knowing God is necessary to being able to live this life rightly. Or another way to put this is this life will always be incomplete if it lacks God. Now, this is because this world was created for his glory. This world was created for us to um, um, actually see and know him more completely. Without him, our life then becomes about accomplishing all sorts of things that are simply not of utmost importance. And as we work hard to reach all of these goals, each one becomes another place for us to realize we still don't have what we're looking for. And so for so many of us, this describes our life. I chased after this thing, it didn't satisfy. So I switched over here, I chased after that thing, it didn't satisfy. I thought maybe this would do it, that didn't satisfy. So I tried this, that didn't satisfy. And we keep moving to the next job and the next idea and the next vacation and the next degree and the next relationship, whatever it is in your life. But we have to keep moving. Because if we actually look at the reality of where we're at, It's overwhelming. So we keep putting our hope in the next thing. The next thing that will provide what we're looking for. And they never do. Because they can't. As Augustine very famously said, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Until we find our rest in God, everything else is just frenetic energy. And as a people created to rest in God, it doesn't matter how much we do or how much we are praised, none of it will give us insight and fullness. We will just keep making ourselves more accomplished fools. But there's a better way, Lady Wisdom tells us. There's good news. The good news is that God offers everything that we need. We just need to receive it. Rather than going out and doing and proving, all we need to do is actually admit that we need it and receive what Jesus has already done. Ephesians chapter 1 describes it this way in verse 7. It says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. His grace has been lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Which is to say, in Jesus, we have been shown that this world is not about how impressive human beings can be 
or about what we can cram into our heads or about what we can accomplish or about who we can get to like us. It's about seeing ourselves as part of God's plan in the fullness of time, which we are invited into through the work of Jesus on our behalf. God is uniting all things to himself. Everything in this world will be aligned with him. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess. And we are given the opportunity to become more and more aligned with him now. And so every week when we come here, we place ourselves into God's story. We're reminded of the gospel. We tell over and over again, this is what Christ has done. This is where we fit into it. And as we join together in communion, we are remembering the fact that we are incomplete without God, but that Jesus has done the work to bring us to completion. And so as you come to the table today, recognize that Jesus knows exactly who you are. He does not love a future version of you. He loves you in all of your foolishness and sin and lack. But in in that, he chooses to call us his and provide us with everything that we need. And so come to receive what he offers. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for, well, first of all, for loving us. Um, Because so much of what we do is unlovable. So much of how we act is um, against you and, and, and in trying to almost prove ourselves greater than you. And yet in your grace and your mercy and your love, you just keep pushing forward, pursuing us, showing us more and more of who we really are. God, I pray that you would help us to realize um, just what it means for us to be creation, sinful creation, loved by an eternal God. Help us to see ourselves for who we truly are so that we can recognize how great and amazing the grace that you have lavished upon us truly is. And God, I pray that all of the the good things that you have put in this world that can become a distraction, that you will help us to find the balance, the the order um, that they fit into. Help us to continue to live this life to the fullest, to accomplish, to do, to enjoy but in such a way that brings glory to you. Because we are not very good at that. God, just help us every step along the way. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.